I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. If we don't act, we'll be forced to act. And I, I'd just rather make change than be subject to chaotic change, you know. And yes, things will be messy in this transition, but there'll be unholy chaos if we don't go out to meet it, if we aren't brave, if we just rest on our laziness, I think our future is very bleak. Australians are awake to the fact they're being hoodwinked and they do respond to good information and they want to feel proud. But nobody wants to feel a kind of bogus pride based on a lie. I'm Sarah Wilson and this is Wild. A show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. I probably only read three of Tim Winton's books, Cloud Street, and I've also seen the movie, Dirt Music, which I really liked, and Breath, which I found incredibly confronting, in part for its portrayal of both women and young men. It's a criticism he gets for a bunch of his books, actually. Tim's written 29 books, and four of them have won Australia's most prominent literary award, the Miles Franklin. Two have been shortlisted for the Booker Prize. Now, for listeners outside Australia, Tim Winton's writing is best summarised as very Australian. It crackles with the heat and the isolation of the land, and the rawness of the self-conscious colonial jingoism which we cling to down here. And now I'm starting to sound like Tim Winton's writing. Needless to say, Tim is a big literary deal here. He's been declared a living treasure by the National Trust. That was back in 1997. And and he even has a new fish species named after him, a 30-centimetre-long grunter that swims around the Kimberley in northern Western Australia. But over the years, Tim has mostly caught my attention on the rare occasions when he's emerged from his remote locale on the West Australian coast, and he never discloses where he lives, to speak out, to get activist. For instance, at the height of the Me Too movement back in 2018, he used his book tour for his latest book, The Shepherd's Hut, to talk extensively to sold-out rooms about toxic masculinity in Australia. I remember reading the speech in The Guardian at the time, and I'll put the link in the show notes, and I shared it with friends and family because it was profound. I remember he wrote, masculinity mutates in settler societies. He's also a strapped-in climate and environmental activist, and he's patron of the Australian Marine Conservation Society. The guy donated his $28,000 Miles Franklin prize money for dirt music to a campaign to save Ningaloo Reef. It's a stretch of land about 1,200 kilometres north of Perth. He was saving it from developers. Ningaloo, by the way, is regarded as one of the last intact wild places on the planet, and that campaign got it listed as a World Heritage Site. And then last year, he donated another prize, $15,000 for his memoir, The Boy Behind the Curtain, to the same campaign for, as he will explain shortly, the fight continues. He's also dedicated the past three years to writing and narrating a three-part documentary series about the reef, which will air on the ABC this month. And it's on Sky, Nature and a bunch of other pay channels internationally. At the most recent Writers' Festival that he attended, he used the opportunity to stand in the arena, so to speak, and pillory the oil and gas industries in an extended speech. Chevron was a sponsor of the festival. 
But in the speech, he argued that all of us, artists, the audience, we're all complicit. He calls it a colonisation of the public conscience by the resources sector. The colonisation is complete, he said, and it goes almost entirely unremarked. He also pointed to the fact that surf lifesavers first have to be woodside nippers. He doesn't hold back, and I'll put the link to that speech as well if you're keen to read it in the show notes. We will talk all of this, but amidst it all, a theme emerges in our conversation, and that is that our settler or colonial or invader mindset and past is responsible for much of all of this, the toxic Australian masculinity, our complicitness in fossil fuel sellout, and the destruction of what we so love and cherish. Tim Winton, welcome to Wild. You very much write about Australia, both the land and Australia, the people, and in a very Australian and yet at the same time un-Australian way. And what I mean by that is you lay it all out raw and unapologetic, but at the same time in your writing you expose the ugly underbellies and paradoxes which have at their heart, I feel, and I'm really interested in your take, our shameful history of colonisation. And so I've always felt that it's not very Australian, right, to shake up the she'll be right vibes. And I want to cover off a few of the vibes that you've shaken up over the years. The first one that I'd love to talk to you about is masculinity and and Australian men. I remember when you did your The Shepherd's Hut tour in 2018, I read the speech that The Guardian ran at the time and I, I, I read it and shared it with everyone I know. It really affected me. You wrote about sort of hanging out with young men in the surf and what you'd learned from young men. What got you speaking out on this issue at the time? Obviously, there are themes in the book, The Shepherd's Hut, but what got you really dedicated to doing a speaking tour on this? I guess I'd, I got to an age. You know, by the time you get to your late 50s and then into your, into your 60s, as an Australian man and also, you know, plainly all Australian women, had a kind of an expectation that things would get better. And to some degree, it's, it's irrefutable, you know, the notion that things have got better. Laws have changed, expectations, cultural expectations have changed. But I guess I was just puzzled and dispirited by the degree to which certain things hadn't changed and how the young men that I was seeing who were essentially the age of my grandchildren were exhibiting the same kinds of views and attitudes that were around in my father's generation, I mean, my generation. And, and so I guess it was just the degree to which these really unhelpful, narrow and damaging views about women and about men themselves had just been endlessly reinforced by the culture, by institutions, and, and sadly by, by parents, by, by fathers and mothers alike. So yeah, I guess it was just, you think when you get to a certain age, you can't be shocked anymore. But yeah, I was just surprised that kids who had been through a whole education system, which was different to the one that I'd been through, were still exhibiting attitudes that were just poisonous. Yeah. I'm just going to read actually two extracts from that speech that kind of give a, a feel for what you were covering. You wrote, these wild colonial boys, they're a terror to Australia, real and imagined. But I worry about our revulsion for them, our desire to banish them from consciousness for their non-compliance, their mistakes, or their faithful adherence to the scripts that have been written for them. That really hit me, but there's another bit as well. You said, there's so much about them, boys out in the surf, and in them that's lovely, graceful, dreamy, vulnerable, qualities we either don't notice or simply blind ourselves to. You see, there's great native tenderness in children, in boys as much as in girls, but so often I see boys having the tenderness shamed out of them. I almost feel that those paragraphs sum up what you've, you've just said, but the line, these wild colonial boys, how much do you think our resistance to change has to do with our colonial past? How, how specific is this to Australia? Because it's obviously a global issue. We're seeing a lot of stuff happening with boys and men around the world. But I think, well, I'm wondering, I'm wondering, Tim, whether you feel that there's something specific to Australia going on here. Probably not specific to Australia. I think, you know, sexism is 
generally would, you know, I think you could say it's universal misogyny, probably the same. And I don't think those, they're the, I don't think they're the same, you know, they're different words that mean different things. But I think there is some difference in settler cultures, which we have to account for, which obviously, you know, Australia isn't the only settler culture on the globe, but settler cultures begin and are perpetuated by seizure, by, you know, forceful entry, penetration, the seizure of lands, the expulsion of, of first peoples, enclosure. It's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a process that, you know, almost every settler culture has followed, but in, in order to maintain territory and what first peoples would, you know, our first peoples would call country, what we call territory, which is telling, I think. You know, maintain control. There's a kind of a hardening and a heart and a heartlessness that, that's that's at its core. I think in, you know, in in Australia, we have this tendency still to romanticise colonialism, to romanticise settling as a as an activity. None of us can go back and change the past. None of us can undo what's been done. And look, you know, many people who came here, including my ancestors, some came as settlers, some came as involuntary tourists, but all of them were, I think, you know, they came with a, with a colonizing attitude, an attitude that this is a strange place that no one lived in. And if they worked hard, it would, it would belong to them. And look, they did work hard and they were courageous and they were in, inventive, but there was also a, a, a kind of a fleck of steel at the heart that makes it possible to mm. continue. So look, I think, I think this attitude of what I can see is, is mine, whatever, whatever is before me belongs to me somehow by right or by implication. And all they're going to do is be hard and unflinching and seize. And look, I think that extends to the way that Australian men have seen women and children. And I, I think there's a lot of unlearning to do in that process. Yeah, there seems to be a hanging on, a hanging on to that idea of the, the steely heart. And, you know, I just think of that whole frontier man notion that we, these men came to Australia, had to conquer this incredible hardship, these desolate lands. And you've got the bushranger ideology and mythology, and you've got the, you know, I always think of Frederick McCubbin's painting, Hard on His Luck, you know, the bloke. Bending over a fire, I think it's a three. It's a trip tech, isn't it? You know, out there colonising some territory. I think he gets married and then he's got to bury his son or something like that. You know, hard times. What I feel, and I don't know if you feel the same, Tim, is we've hung on to that, like that image of the hard on his luck, you know, larrikin, bushrangery kind of mythology. And in hanging on to it, we don't move on. And so there's a whole range of issues that then come up through the gaps as I think women move on and the rest of the world moves on. And then these blokes who haven't been given a different type of mythology or a different storyline. And this is something I've discussed in other episodes of the podcast. What it does is also it eradicates discussion around class because apparently we're all equalized by this story. But the rest of the world and the rest of the country is kind of going, actually, no, there is some class stuff going on here. It's a, and I know you've spoken about class and you've written about it in one of your books as well. Do you feel that that has a part to play in this, this not letting go of things and this kind of masking of the way the world is actually changing? Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. I, I, just to go back to those McCubbin images, this is one version of one person's reality outside the fray. You don't see the Indigenous peoples who are scraped out of that country as, the, as those forests have failed. They're outside the frame. But also what's outside the frame is all the other white people, the squatters, the rich landed people with access to, you know, the ear of royalty, aristocracy, power. That's an Australian story as well. We just love this idea that there's just a lousy battle down here, banging away, and that's Australia. That's part of it. But there's also these other parts. And I think class is one of those elements in Australia that we just don't like to acknowledge because, again, we have a romance about our settler origins and, and about colonialism, and we have this romance about masculinity, but a romance about our egalitarian ethos. You know, this is it's painful to discuss because you know I, I, I'm very proud of, of the fact that our culture is different to so many 
others and I've lived in other countries and, you know, we, we do have a, a different and more equal view, but we, the way we mythologize it is beyond all proportion. And also it's, we tend to mythologize it in a way that shuts down, as you say, any discussion around the nuances around that. And there, and there are, I mean, I grew up in a working class background. I, I became a, a bourgeois kind of by accident, really. You know, and in a, and in a way, it's a, the fact that I could, that I could become a middle class person within one generation is a thing to celebrate. But also, it's not by the same means that you know the Australian trajectory is supposed to go by. You know, hard physical labour, scraping people off their country. I became bourgeois from being an artist. A trajectory that we like to celebrate or venerate in Australia. If it's if it's not from conquering and digging things up and dis dispossessing people, at least, you know, the only other legitimate way is to be a sports person, you know? So it's yeah. kind of, it's kind of weird, but I, having said that, having been sort of, you know, raised out of the working class by, not really by my own strength of character or my own talent or whatever, really, I, I was raised out of the working class by government policy without, without the Whitlam changes, I wouldn't have gone to university. I wouldn't, I just wouldn't have had access to the wires wouldn't have been pushed down and I couldn't have got through. And that was an era that I also benefited from as well. I don't think I would have become bourgeois myself, you know, because I wouldn't have had access to university education without those measures. But it was an era where we probably did embrace egalitarianism, or at least there was a little more. I don't know that it addressed race per se, but there were efforts in that direction. Then, of course, we went backwards from the 90s and the discussion kind of shut down, you know, and the arts got, you know, increasingly defunded. And really the only way you could raise yourself was be a sports person. Yeah, we were recolonized. I mean, I think that, you know, that's the, you know, the, the last 30 years of Soto capitalism is, is a history of recolonization. We thought we'd thwart off you know, our kind of English heritage of, of subservience as a, as a minor outstation of Britain. And we just imbibed a kind of a, an idea of ourselves and of the world as we, we, we're no longer citizens together. We were all clients and customers. Our, our culture mm -hmm. became an economy and the way that we were taught to think was purely in financial terms. So I think we, we somehow submitted to a new, for a new dispensation of indentured labor. It's really strange to see how, how willing we were after having got our freedom. You know, all of those people who went into parliament who are, you know, in power now and have been in power for the last 20 years, at least probably 30 years, most of them, except all the ones that, you know, went to private schools and would have gone to university anyway, because, you know, their mums and dads had plaques on the wall and pews in the church mm -hmm. and except, except for those, most of the people who are in parliament went to university for free, <laughs> like you and me. And they've just been busy pulling the ladder up after themselves ever since. It's just really weird that something as transformational as of that government support for free education, free healthcare has just been slowly wound back because it's not seen to be grown up because somehow we, if we're not harder and crueler and meaner and narrower, then we feel a bit soft and socialist. It's really strange. I mean, we, I came from a culture of high taxation and high service delivery and you know, it was good. It wasn't perfect, but it, it was good. It's just amazing how we've just thrown so much cargo overboard to make a heavier and heavier and heavier ship. And it goes against that mythology of the egalitarian country, doesn't it? Like it's doing a disservice to that mythology, which I don't really like to subscribe to, but if you do, there's real inconsistencies there that have occurred since I'd say the, the early nineties onwards. This segues a little into your climate and environment work, and I'm thinking specifically of the, the speech that you did, and it was published in a number of places, and I'll put it in the show notes for everyone, at the Perth Writers' Festival, where you spoke out against this kind of thing, this colonisation by capitalism. And you do refer to the complacency, the fact that all of us are letting this happen, you know, on our watch. We're letting the nippers get called the Woodside nippers, and we're seeing this everywhere. 
we we allow it to happen. Like how do we Australians who, you know, are battlers, we fight the big guys, how do we let this happen? And you refer to a colonisation of the public conscience by the resource sector. And so there we go. We, we have the word colonisation there again. Can you just talk a little bit more about what inspired you to do that speech, to use the forum at a big festival to speak out on, on you know, big fossil fuels, duping us into all kinds of messages. We're sitting there with our eyes wide open and we're, we're allowing it to happen, but that's the power of colonisation, right? Yeah, I, it was not, I mean, that was not a speech I wanted to make because it was extremely uncomfortable, particularly in, a, in an arts forum and, you know, people want to be made to feel comfortable. And so you know that you're, you know, you're essentially just dropping a Chiquito in the deep end of the pool or, you know, farting in the lift. Sorry, I can't think of it. I can't think of it. Well, I almost feel like I, for my international listeners, I've got to explain <laughs> roughly without getting too dirty what you're talking about. A Chiquito is a particularly turd-like looking chocolate bar that I think you can only get in New Zealand and Australia. So I'll let your imagination work it out from there. Anyway, yes, you do. Not Dropping shit on the situation. I, I, yeah, chitting in the pool, basically. But, but I just felt that in terms of the point that we find ourselves now in, in history, that there's just no alternative. The kind of the quietism that most artists are encouraged to adopt is just less and less tenable and less and less responsible, you know, while we you know, find ourselves in a position where we probably have maybe seven years We've been talking about the last decade of possible agency in terms of, you know, making changes to, to the way we do business to keep the global temperature within bearable limits. So the, there's a sense of urgency and just, I just felt obliged to bring it up. And the really the painful thing is to acknowledge the level of state capture and the level of cultural capture that's been enacted very carefully. A lot of money has been spent to do it. This is a project on a fossil fuel sector over generations have spent a lot of money hiding facts about climate. They've spent a lot of money hiding their own science and their own research into it. They've spent millions and millions and millions of dollars confusing people for this day, for this moment where finally their social license, you know, is under threat and the prospect of the end of their industry looms. They, they know they have their own limited time. The sand is ripping through the hourglass for the oil and gas industry. And they're doing everything they can to get what they can while they can. And mm. the degree to which governments have obliged the fossil fuel industry is breathtaking and really dispiriting when you, you know, when you get to see the detail and, and the outcomes. I've got four grandkids and I know that in their lifetime, according to the best science available, coming out of the UN, that they are unlikely, unless we can do hard things and wise things and just things now, you know, my grandkids are unlikely to see the wonders of Australia that sustain me, that I grew up with, that I yearn to celebrate and to share, you know, and, and I, so I think, you know, this is, this is an extremely urgent moment. It is. It, the time is really now. And just for some context, one of the things that had happened and it had prompted you to speak out at this festival was that one of the sponsors, I think, was Chevron, one of the, the big fossil fuel companies. And I think there's been a number of instances of arts festivals and, and music festivals being sponsored by these fossil fuel companies over in Western Australia. So it's a very a, an alive thing over there, as it is around the world. What I found interesting is in the talk, you refer to the fact that the gas industry, and this is something I'm living at the moment, I'm doing a campaign trying to get people off gas, right? So I'm very aware of the playbook that they work to, you know, telling us that gas is natural, that, you know, the whole cooking with gas motto was invented by the gas industry in the 1940s and they planted it into movies and sitcoms and even cartoons. Daffy Duck ran with that line. Anyway, you mentioned that they come out saying that gas is a vital part of the transition. As long as that transition lasts another 50, 80, 100 years. And the point is, we've got to do that transition in eight years. That's the point. And then you add, which is not so much from the tobacco playbook, or in my case, I'd say the sugar playbook, as from the fevered brow. 
So there's almost a desperation now. And are you, are you thinking that a big part of what they're trying to do is they're trying all different tactics now. They're sort of throwing it all out there onto the footy field. Like, let's just try this and a bit of this and we'll sponsor a, a writer's festival. And, and it, is, is that what you were referring to there, that, that all of us need to have our guard up because they're coming for all of us? You know, it used to be a fairly straightforward thing. You know, maybe we understood that they may be pay, paid out politicians to, you know, the lobbyists and all that kind of thing. But now it's, it's every strata, isn't it, of society that's been affected yeah. by this. Yeah. And I think that it's, it's just, it's sharing the news of just how deep this infestation has dug into, into our culture. And for the, for the arts world, you know, for part of the context of, of the speech was that, you know, not only were, was the fossil fuel industry sponsoring the festival, it was specific sponsorship arrangement within the festival of an orchestral piece, which was about the plight of the world's oceans in the age of climate change. And it was sponsored by Woodside. So at one level, you've got the arts community trying to be on side, trying to be enlightened, trying to bring beauty and hope to the culture while unwittingly, and in some instances, knowingly collaborating with the people and industries most likely to constrain mm. our, our, our future. And it was, it's, I was sort of at pains to point out that, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't make the, those people in the arts communities bad people, and, and just, but it just makes us chumps. You know, the degree to which we've been hoodwinked, it was, was the point and that, but also you know, I just wanted to be honest about how difficult it is to get untangled from these arrangements. It goes into our sporting bodies. It goes into our cultural bodies. It goes right into our political parties. The infestation is pretty deep and it's, it's very difficult. Even if you wanted to divest yourself in terms of your banking arrangements, whether in your, your, and you're talking about, you know, divesting yourself personally and domestically of, of gas, none of these things are easy and none of these things can be done overnight, but it's a tough process. If we want to be grown-ups, we just have to do hard things. If we want to be visionary, if we want to be imaginative, if we want to be powerful, if we want to be decent, it means doing hard things. And, and you know, every friend knows that, every parent knows that, every teacher knows that. You can't just dish up more soft pabulum and expect a child or a culture to thrive and to grow. Eventually, you're stunting people by not telling them the truth, by not giving them good food, and certainly by not providing them clean air, clean water, and fertile soil. You know, they're just really basic things. The, the, the ground you stand on, the air you breathe, the water you drink and swim in, you know. That's your inheritance. That's your economy. The rest of it is just elaboration. The rest is life. Yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. One of your biggest projects that you've been working on for 20 years or so is, well, saving the Ningaloo Reef, which is on the, the west coast of Australia, but quite far north. It's a very remote part of Australia. Can you, can you describe the reef, but also the fight that you've been engaged in for two decades? 
Yeah, well, it's kind of Ningaloo is is like a bookend. It's a small bookend to you know the world's greatest coral reef and largest living structure, uh, which is the, the Great Barrier Reef, which is on the east coast of Australia. Yeah. On the west coast, a much smaller, that much closer structure, uh, Ningaloo Reef. It's only three hundred kilometres long, but it's right on shore, so you can wade into it. It's that it's that close, and because it's it's so remote, and because it's a desert maritime environment, it's really quite different to the Great Barrier Reef. It's extremely rich. It's very resilient because it, it's just a dry environment. We have two opposing currents, a warm one and a, a cool one. And that's meant that it's just it's a kind of a real hotspot for biodiversity. So you'll, you'll be able to encounter more species of megafauna in a single day at Ningaloo than you probably can anywhere else in the world, including the Serengeti. So, you know, anything from, wow. you know, whale sharks, dugongs, manta rays, humpback whales, you know, it just goes on and on and on. Yeah, I think it's been arguably put that it's one of, if not the last, fully intact sort of wild places on the planet. And I know that your work resulted in 12 years ago, the world, getting World Heritage listed, but it's in trouble again, right? And you've been putting together a documentary series that will run globally on various paid channels, but also on the ABC here in Australia. It's a three-part series that will, I think, go to air May 16th. Anyway, it's screened mm-hmm. throughout May. It'll be on iView as well for anyone listening. But it's also on one of the Sky Nature channels as well globally. But, yeah, it's you tell a story. I mean, it's, it's in trouble again. I would have thought World Heritage listed, you know, it's going to be looked after for a bit. We, we should be right. But. I would be wrong. So can you explain to us where things are at right now? Yeah, we, a community organisation, started the, the kind of the campaign to save Ningaloo Reef in 2000. We were trying to stop a, an enormous marina development going smack dab in the middle of the reef near Coral Bay. And we were successful after three or four years, despite everybody telling us that we, we didn't stand a chance. Me sort of deep down, probably believing that we didn't either. So that was kind of my civic education, my, my kind of education in what people are like, really. That, that if, you, if you give people good information, clean information that's not polluted by commercial interests, and you can help them get organized, then they can, they can change a government. And, and it, was, it was bipartisan. It was across all, all the whole political spectrum, all generations. It was all class divisions. It was an amazing thing to be a part of. In 2011, the the, the reefs and the Cape Range were put on the World Heritage uh, list, and that was a a really a wonderful outcome. We're very proud of having been a part of that. Sadly, Exmouth Gulfs, which is, I should say, the Ningaloo region is made up of three really intertwined ecosystems, the Ningaloo Reef. The Cape Range and Exmouth Gulf. The Gulf is massive. You know, it's twenty six hundred square kilometres. I think it's about nearly fifty times the size of Sydney Harbour. And the sad part is that the, the Gulf was originally meant to be in the World Heritage Area. It's it was within the boundaries. It was called the optimal boundary. And sadly, because of lobbying from business interests shall we say, the, the Gulf part of the World Heritage listing was white-handed, basically. They undermined it to the point where it was had to be withdrawn. So really, what, we're, what we've been focused on in the last few years, because industrialization really threatens the Gulf, and you now industrialists are trying to exploit this gap in, in protection, we've really just been trying to bring attention to Exmouth Gulf and, and get it added to the World Heritage List alongside as part of the Ningaloo World Heritage Area. So it's a, it's a bit of a process because we don't even have a, a marine park in, in this amazing waterway. It's so diverse. It's so rich. It's such an amazing place to be and nobody knows about it. And it's just kind of part of the dilemma that we faced during the original Ningaloo campaign. Yeah. You have to, in order to save a place, whether you like it or not, you have to tell people about it. You have to make something that's a, a secret or a slightly obscure place. You have to make it famous. And that's mm. because if you, if a place isn't known and it doesn't have attention, then anything can happen to it. And it's only a couple of years since 
you know, an, an amazing, rare, sacred place called Jukun Gorge, not so far from Ningaloo in the, in the Pilbara region, was blown up by Rio Tinto. It's a 40,000-year-old sacred rock shelter full of artifacts. That place wouldn't have been blown up if Jukun was a famous place, if people knew about it. Things can happen to places as they can happen to people in obscurity when there's no attention, when it's just over the horizon. So, you know, even though it's slightly painful and a bit of a dilemma to sharing this amazing place with the world, if we, you know, if we don't share it, we don't raise its profile, we don't raise its social value, we have no chance of saving it. And it, that's how it works for the reef and the range, and this is how it'll have to go for the Gulf. We know it's, we have to share the secret in order to protect it and to make, to share our love for it so that other people love it and value it and tell governments and corporations, sorry, hands off, not this place. Yeah, the marine park thing is a really big thing in Australia. It's, you know, I encourage everybody to to read up on it and follow it. And if you see anything in the news about it, like get engaged. So many of us, the bulk of Australians live on the coast. There is a fight going on and they often win, to be honest, when enough locals get involved. Because, you know, people like to save the fish, but it's a very robust campaign to get involved in is this idea of marine parks. But, I mean, Tim, I listened to you describing it. I listened to you describing how it took three years of solid work, mobilisation, protest and so on to get that World Heritage listing 12 years ago. And, you know, I, I often lie in bed at night and go, all these hours, these hours that we spend trying to get these issues at the forefront of people's minds so that, you know, we can then vote in leaders that's, that protect these important things. It can be very demoralising. I think it's a really big sort of impediment for a lot of people. Like they sort of think, oh, well, if I sign a petition, it'll just sort of happen. And then they get quite upset that, no, it's years and years of slog. And then you do get the wins. It, it does happen. There's that Margaret Mead quote, which we're all familiar with, you know, the amazing amount of stuff that happens when a small amount of people get mobilised or something. I can't remember it now. I'm totally bastardising that quote. But what do you think works from years of doing this? I mean, I think what does work is when, excuse the characterization here, but when an old white surfer who's famous and has his mug on, a, on an Australian postage stamp, you know, voices up on things, that can often work. But what else cuts through? You know, what cuts through to people? What grabs their imagination? And I want to throw in here the fact that one thing about, you can say about Australians that is a really wonderful thing is we don't tolerate bullshit, you know, and I think that's something that we actually can be proud of. We call it out eventually. We suck it up, we suck it up, and then we go, hang on, that's gone too far. And I'm just wondering if that piece, that really, you know, sort of parochial jingoistic aspect of Australiana can be called upon. And I really am sort of pointing in the direction of calling out the bullshit that we get served by the fossil fuel companies, like sponsoring the nippers and, and that kind of thing. But I'd love your thoughts on it from your years at the front line of all of this. Yeah, look, I, I think the celebrity thing often doesn't work, mostly because the, a lot of the celebrities that get dragged into these things don't have any organic connection to the issue or the place. So they don't really have any credibility. Where it does work is when those people have serious skin in the game and not just know what they're talking about, but care enough to do more than show up once for a press conference or a photo opportunity. Yeah. Like Jane Fonda. Jane Fonda has done a hell of a lot for the climate movement because she has had skin in the game for a very long time. She leads these yeah. movements and mobilizes. Yeah. Yeah, look, but that's not to say that, you know, you don't appreciate when somebody famous lends a hand. It's just, you don't, I think we, people make a mistake of thinking that that's, that's just the game changer, that that's everything. And you have thing, everything on the shoulders of some person who's, you know, famous for reading the news or remembering their lines or knocking a piece of leather around a park, you know, but I think the thing that made the difference in over, over my 20 years is reaching a broadest possible church, you know, re, you know, just being open-minded about your fellow citizens, giving them the benefit of the doubt, not refusing to talk to them or shying away from talking to them because that's, they're not the kind of people who are interested in something like this. There's so much self-limiting going on. It's just about your own narrow-mindedness. So there's, there's establishing 
a broad conversation and, a, and then growing a broad church. And then there's just organization. And it's just letting people know that this isn't all on them. That this is not going to be, none of these things can be won by the work of an individual, you know, but it's, it's one individual listening and sharing and working with others. And it's that organization that's, that makes the difference. But a lot of it is, mm. as you say, it's just speaking truth to power, which is, you know, that's a, that's a kind of a posh way of saying, calling out bullshit and, you know, being relentless about it, but being civil about it. And I think there's a lot to be said for civility and just in terms of it being less abrasive for the people that you're dealing with, but also less morally abrasive on yourself. You, you can get, you can out of desperation, just get yourself into a situation where you've just lost so much pain that, that you, you become savage, you become just angry and in a sense, no, no different to the people that you're trying to remove or, or change. So yeah, there's, there's nothing like the, the slick, civil, well-groomed spokesperson for a multinational corporation being able to win over an audience because some angry, shrill person who's just five days since they slept. They're so distressed about what they're doing and you, and you undermine yourself. But people get to that stage often when they don't have or allow themselves to be helped by their comrades. So it's comradeship really that keeps us sane and keeps us going. It's the, it's the shared values. It's, it's the shared passion for, in this instance, you know, wild places, wild culture, wild experiences wild creatures yeah i often say you've got to find a way to enjoy this you know fight quote unquote and you know i've always felt that the way to get change is to make present the new way of doing things as sexier more charming more fun than the status quo and so that puts over almost an obligation but in a good way on your head to actually find a way to enjoy it you know to really love it and i think a lot of it does come through the community and the sense of belonging and the sense of purpose that you, you can create through these things. I want to pull out a little bit just to finish off because we've, we've got down into the nitty gritty of things. And by the way, I'll put all the details to the Ningaloo three-part series. It's absolutely Oh, yeah, we probably, haven't, we probably haven't talked about that, have we? Yeah, well, it's sort of one of those things that's so visual. Mm. I think you've got to watch it. I think covering yeah. off these issues, I hope, is an invitation for people to go and see it. But it's also one of the most stunning places, I think, in the world. I've not been there, but my family, a lot of my family spend time up there, you know, just to declare a certain kind of interest. My sister-in-law works to save our marine life, and so she's very engaged in these kinds of things. So she's up there a fair bit camping and so on with her, her boys, my nephews. Is there anything you want to say before I ask my closing question about the documentary? What, what do people need to know to go and be incentivized to go and watch it? It probably leads on from your, your previous question. One of the ways of bringing issues and places to the attention of the world is some of it's about, you know some of it's about writing, some of it's about speeches, some of it's about rallies and marches, and some of it's just having the opportunity and sometimes the resources to put these places in front of people so that they, they get infected by the awe and wonder that you already know. And, mm. and I guess that's for, for us to be able to make a, you know, a three hour, you know, three part documentary about Ningaloo was just the opportunity to just share the glory and the wonder of this, of this amazing place. And, to, and then to make a science-based natural history documentary that wasn't in itself uh, a propaganda tool that is something that is itself, that does a lot of that work for us. And yeah, I mean, not everybody can swim with a whale shark or be face to face with a humpback whale or, you know, in this instance, hold a 400 kilogram dugong in their arms. So I had mm. some privileged experiences as a result, but it's just, it's just a unique way of sharing with the world how incredible this place is and, and reminding people of that every single minute of every day, those places become more precious because they're disappearing before our eyes. Yeah. 
I think awe is a great channel into all of this, is getting people to touch that awe and wonder. It does magical things. Yeah, thank you. And as I say, show notes, all the details there. But just to, to broaden out and to wrap up, I have, as I say, a lot of faith in Australians' ability to call out bullshit, but there's a lot of bullshit going down. And if we go back to the gender stuff, the masculinity stuff, the toxic masculinity stuff, there's bullshit going on that's really destroying lives for both men and women. And this idea, this mythology that she'll be right, everything will be right, you know, hey, we're just laid back down here. That doesn't work for us anymore. And it's actually a very dangerous myth to hang on to. And uh, I just think that I feel that those tropes need to be shaken up. Do you think that that's possible? How do you think we can go about that? You've worked in and around this mythology throughout your books. You tap into it. You kind of put it on the page in all of its paradoxes, contradictions, uglinesses, and you get criticized at times as well for focusing on those things. You know, I think there's that gender lens that you get criticized for over the years. But yeah, do you think we will shake this up? Are we on the, the cusp of this or what will it take? You know, will it take longer? What do you feel, Tim? Well, I, I'm, I'm very hopeful, but I, not because I'm a particularly hopeful person by nature, but because I don't see there's any alternative than to be hopeful as a form of discipline. And I, I look back and think about all the changes, positive changes that have been made that have overcome what we're talking about, in a sense, laziness. You know, the, the idea that we have of ourselves is a lazy idea. The status quo and the acceptance of a status quo, whether that's about class, whether that's about gender, whether that's about Indigenous rights, the people who want everything to stay the same are not really always motivated by idealism or even by what you might respectfully call conservatism, they're often just reacting in a lazy way to the prospect of anything changing. But everything that's, everything that's good in our culture, that's changed, that's broken through, has come from hard work, from people overcoming laziness and doing uncomfortable and brave things. And I think, yes, I, I, think, we'll, I think we'll break through this because we have to, for our own self-respect, for our own sense of honour, for those who come after us, whether we're parents or we're not parents, grandparents or not, we know that there are people coming after us. I want to be a good ancestor. I don't want to be you know, looked back upon as someone shameful or you know, s someone notable in a shameful generation. I think that we, we should have enough self-respect to bequeath a future which is open and hopeful and rich, wild, not constrained and poor and immiserating, which is, you know, what we, what we'll do if we don't change our attitudes about all of the things that we've been talking about. We want to liberate people. We want to liberate places. We want to liberate the future rather than send it off in chains. Mm. And in so many ways, Australia is sort of the canary down the mine shaft, I think, with the climate crisis where a couple of years ahead, like in, in, we're in the south, you know, and, and things are going to get worse here before they get super bad in the north. And so we're a portend of what's to come. And so it's going to get uncomfortable. So maintaining a comfort and maintaining a laid back, she'll be right vibe, it just won't sit. It, it won't be kosher. So No, it'll be, it'll be uncomfortable in the end. Yeah. I, mm. mean, look. I think we're going to be forced into the new way. Yeah, if we don't act, we'll be forced to act. And I, I'd just rather make change than be subject to chaotic change, you know. And yes, things will be messy in this transition, but there'll be unholy chaos if we don't go out to meet it, if we aren't brave. If we just rest on our laziness, I think our future is very bleak. And I find that very hard to contemplate. I just think that Australians are awake to the fact they're being hoodwinked and they do respond to good information and they want to feel proud, but nobody wants to feel a kind of bogus pride based on a lie or a tapestry of lies in this case. Yeah, that's a great note to finish on. And I apply your, those rounding thoughts to both the problem of toxic masculinity and the climate. I think it applies to both. We're going to have to, exactly. um, we're going to have to make that dignified change rather than being forced into it via chaos. Hey, Tim Winton, it's been an absolute pleasure. Good luck with all your work and um, the launch of the three-part series. 
I encourage every parent to get their kids to watch it because it's really actually very, very stunning. It's a beautiful, it's a, just a beautiful picture of Australia to, to get that feeling of awe and wonderment about. Good luck with everything. Thanks, Mike. I'm not going to paraphrase that conversation too much here, except to just remind everyone to check out in the show notes the links to campaigns and the Ningaloo documentary that will air on the ABC this month. And as always, I'm just going to issue the reminder to share this episode or the whole podcast series to everyone you know. It's really appreciated when you do that. And I'm always open to more wild voices to invite on here. So please feel free to send me your suggestions via the comments over at Substack. Again, the link to that in the show notes. So stay wild, you guys. I'll see you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.